Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world. Broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world. BlakeRadio.com, the music for your mind, body, and soul. Talk radio at its best. You are listening to Rainbow Soul from BlakeRadio.com. Radio Network Rainbow Soul. And today is Tuesday, May 26th, and it is 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And today's topic is, are you serving time? You know, it's always... When I talk to people, they tell me that they feel trapped. And I really didn't much understand it until... I read this book, It's Glass Hustle by Kenny Johnson. And uh, Kenny Johnson is who uh, started out his criminal life as a teenager and spent more or less 35 years of his life behind bars. Never been uh, in that situation. I always wondered what was it that you know, motive and how was it that they were making um, decisions that would keep them incarcerated? Uh, as I was going through my life as a, a student graduate, as a student at um, I realized that there were substantial periods of time where I felt I was imprisoned. And in talking with my patients, many they were not behind physical bars, had the experience of feeling, of feeling uh, imprisoned, of feeling unable to take action that would be beneficial to them, or even worse, 
not even knowing what action to take. You know, I recommended this book to me more as a kind of a way to understand the concept of enlightenment. I was very much impressed to realize that people behind bars, physically behind bars, were often even me in every way, physically and uh, emotionally, than people who outside of prison. A glimmer of this was brother of my sister-in-law for 25 years, got out of prison, and said that a lot of the outside of prison was much more restrictive and conflict inside prison. So we're going to talk about today the uh, motivation and what was it motivated him to make his um, and so what really struck me about this person was he made decisions on how other people would perceive them. He made what he believed other people would think or feel. It's shocking that a person would make the important decision based on that notion. In other words, you might, um, you know, wear a ribbon or a lapel pin or something, but to go so far and rob a store so that you would, someone, is really uh, amazing. And this was, and so he didn't feel that there was anything um, particularly wrong with what he was doing, even though one might call him, uh, you know. And so he was really running his life based on an impression of an impression. If you want to put terms, we could say he was his life based on antibody tests. In other words, an impression of an impression of an impression. And that's pretty um, pretty shaky. So here he says, I knew what I had to step up my game. That means commit more crimes. I needed to make a home for my girlfriend and our new baby. And after this big heist, I was able to rent a Tiny apartment. I was broke. Grabbed my trusty screwdriver and my hush puppies and hit the streets. And of course, uh, the heist did not go well, and he ended up in jail. And the thing was, when he got to jail, the goal, of course, was to figure out what he did wrong. What he did wrong, and the getting wrong part was, was always getting caught. And, and what has this got to do with, with in medicine, 
patients make decisions about patients all the time. Now, obviously, patients have no, no control over decisions that doctors make or nurses make, but patients actually do make quite a few uh, decisions. And amazing to me of their decisions. And so someone said to me, they need to get an annual physical sign. He's whatever before. I said, well, if I don't get an annual physical, how will I know that I'm healthy? How will I know things okay? And so, so with this criminal, he was making decisions. So he, the first party, would decide what his body, say a second party, should do. Then a third party, the impression of basically strangers. And so people say, I want to get an annual physical exam to figure out if I'm healthy. What they're saying is, I want to know if my body, the second party, is okay. I'm going to go to a doctor, the third party, to find out. This guarantees that you will always, always be in a prison of going round and and around in a circle. And it seems like you're never getting anywhere. So what you gotta do then, part of what you have to do is take out the middleman. And so If you look at this, for example, he's in jail at this point, and he's very happy because he's recognized, and recognition is. At prison, I was known as Vail because Vail to the store, I'd gotten caught stealing $10,000. It's a jewelry And so, do you think that mission, a peer, support or peer approval is an issue And it happened in 
presidents who are actually physically incarcerated. It's a dangerous, dangerous game to play. And so I'm making decisions based on peer approval. Even worse than that, they're making based on us that are peer-reviewed, reviewed by gang buddies and friends. And this will to the same thing that this, this Kenny Johnson uh, found with being uh, locked up and being in prison. And it will be a prison of your mind, a prison uh, of your thoughts. This is something that, you know, you got to really get in there. So he goes on most of the book, uh, you know, dealing with it. And finally, he realizes that the things are not going well. Been in behind bars for 20 years. Things really aren't going uh, anywhere. And so he finally figured out that he needs to do something different. And one day, someone came to prison and talked about meditation. Meditating and meditating and meditating. And he finally found someone being calm. And he talked to a fellow inmate who gave him advice, great advice for everybody, me included. Never stop pursuing knowledge, both of the sciences and of yourself. So the big detail it is this knowledge is removed from being stuck in prison. And even when you get out of prison, one person another prison waiting for you, especially uh, prisoners in terms of, of thought. And so he goes on and he meditates and he uh, astral projection. But the biggest thing he achieved, the biggest thing he figured after all of his meditating and after um, different uh, transformations, it is that all the peace that he was searching for is actually already inside of him. And while on a spiritual level, this might seem like, oh, yeah, you know, woo-woo stuff. On a level, this is a direct parallel in medicine. In other words, what the doctor is giving you, what the health is giving you, is they're having you pay money for the health that you already have. And this is interesting. So when he found it, he realized or accepted that the mental health, the peace he was looking for, was already inside of him, that it really existed, that he already had it, that it was there, and all he had to do was realize that, then he could no longer, he was no longer attracted by the need to impress his peers, steal stuff, um, stuff to uh, feel this sense of Superiority, powerful things. Because he realized 
that those things are going to give him, he really already had. What's the parallel in this? When you walk into a doctor's office, let's say you're an annual physician, for example, and of course, it just goes, well, you're healthy. So what does the doctor do? Well, the doctor stands you with needles and takes some of your blood. Okay, so right there, he's already sucked away. Then you get subjected and bombarded with x-rays and radiation. Again, sucked away another piece of your health. It's just a ritual the doctor sucks away, sucks away, sucks away, sucks away, and says, oh, I'm going to be healthy because after all, it's not helpful. Well, then obviously, had you not shown up, you would have had your blood, you would have had radiation exposure, and you would have actually been healthy. And so this was a hustle. And I didn't understand the whole hustle concept. So a hustle, you're going to read these books written by prisoners to understand, when someone gets you to go to work every day and get money, which is good, you're going to go there anyway, but they get you to give them your money in exchange for a hustle. And so what this criminal did was hit these women who would go out and steal things all day long, and they would cash bad checks, and they would give him a portion of their money for uh, protection. In other words, if they got caught, he'd show up and bail them out, those kinds of things. So even though what they were doing may not have been sexual, he was still considered a pimp, and this was, was considered later determined was that what he was doing, as bad as it was, was there were bigger hustles going on. And the bigger hustles, this guy, I have to tell you about, uh, he put something in racial terms when uh, maybe they are, maybe they're, maybe they're not. Pop hustles. Uh, he talked about powerful pimps the ones who have always been glorified. But the poor pimps, whether they could come in all colors, had had to figure out a way to make money and survive in the free world. Well, they were all gotten So pimps who owned these churches, Mustang Ranch, were considered cool, but the little ones who had himself a woman and so because of his criminal background and he was able to see Elvis as one what was happening was the official uh, I guess culturally acceptable individuals were basically getting people who worked every day to give them essentially nothing and in many cases forcing them to do so and you could see um, the latest Affordable Care Act, which compels people to do insurance, a huge hustle for health care, which does not even in the basic way of hospital. It's the government literally pimping the trip. Very 
so he figured this out, and and of course she was pretty angry. But this time he was meditating, and so he wasn't supposed to, uh, you know, generate that kind of of negativity. And was he needed to to change his ways? And it was really much to his credit. He was having a temperature on that wrong, but everyone else's was wrong as well, and doing wrong things that he was doing, it didn't make his wrong, his doing wrong the correct thing. I think for those of us who are going to go to prison, um, it's it's very instructional and beneficial to see that this person who was physically in prison and what got him there was him for the approval of others. And when I say others, I mean adopting that value system. And so for, say, a regular person who's uh, free, like going to adopt for health care, sending your kid to a government um, school, knitting a kid, these are all things that if you do them, will leave you financially constructed. And I'll take it a step further, you know, going into the whole formal education thing to its ultimate um, absurdity, which is, of course, that it has a college education as Now, so he goes on and finds that. Actually, as I said, he already had his peace inside of it, or there's no need to, to search for it. And so when he finally gets out of prison, we'll save time, he realizes that he realizes that he doesn't need a fancy he can drive a car that's 10 years old, and that, um, that he can live in a place that has enough space for him and his needs and doesn't need to be in a, um, a palace. And that when he needs, he can, instead of saying, how can I get this from all, he can instead say, what service can I provide people to talk to them? And so that you can actually think in terms of helping and assisting other people. Now, this is, I think, a very important issue. And this is something most people uh, answer this. Now, I'll tell you why this is important. Uh, when I was in high school, I was in high school, going to college, it was really exciting time. It's like, oh my God, it's just moving happening. And, and African Americans, you know, they don't do other citizens or every citizen the United States can do. And of course, it was clear in those years in the 60s leading up to the 70s, a lot of things really weren't quite right. A lot of decisions being made by whoever was running things that really were not, not beneficial 
certainly not for African Americans, and really not for anyone else either. And so I thought when I was, uh, I guess, about 14 or 15, that if I had a chance, that no one else could do. In other words, maybe the blacks couldn't do for a while, become a doctor or get a degree, whatever it was. I was not going to do anything with me that was going to destroy the neighborhood where I grew up. This is something that if you decide that whatever you're going to do in life, it doesn't matter. You can be a song, you can be an architect, you can be an artist, you can swim straight straight behind. That in the course of your work, whatever it might be, that you are going to figure out how you can help other people, then it's easily easy that you'll decide certain jobs you're not going to take because suffer. And if each person would just say, okay, I need money to live. I need whatever it is you need. It doesn't matter. It can be a little bit or it can be a lot. That you're, you're going to do something that's going to be beneficial to someone else. And I think a lot of these uh, evil empire situations really would because people instead of going to work and saying, I need money, I need money, I'm going to do whatever I have to do to get money. I want to be a murderer for the government. Okay, I'm going to help make GMs. I'm going to pollute and contaminate the water supply because I need to do this to myself. That is a strategy that puts you in a prison and keeps you in that prison. Uh, And so reversing that or flipping that, which is what this career criminal found, by saying, how can I help others? What can I do to help other people? That creates a situation, or generates a situation, where your needs are met, and at the same time, you're actually helping others. And no harm is actually not good enough. Not in your life, not in the doctor's life, it's just not good enough. You focus on a positive end. And that's really what this book uh, is. It's very... Uh, um, exciting. And so he also talks about reversals and uh, managed to get into a prison situation where they told him if you um, do everything you're supposed to do, you follow all the, all the rules, then we're going we're gonna to let you finish out your time here. And so and this is also what a lot of people settle for. Okay, I'm going to pay my insurance premium. I'm going to show up for my annual exam. I'm going to do what I'm told and, and just, just, just live out this, this sentence. And so he says here in his book, I had just gotten comfortable at Springfield Prison, had settled into my routine, jailing, we call it, when an inmate lets go of the stress and turns his or her attention to the world of guards, rules, and how to survive in prison. He's jailing. I'd finally begun to settle, see little glimmers of light rather than the black darkness of what it felt like a, an endless depression. I'd gotten anxious to see my daughter and grandkids, losing the possibility of seeing my family, as well as having to leave my new medication meditation group was more than I thought I could bear. And so, of course, what they did was they shipped them out in the middle of nowhere 
where uh, his good behavior was absolutely not rewarded. None of my concerns matter to the prison system. Now, many of you who are not in prison, it sounds really familiar. Maybe when your insurance company is denying a claim but they promised you they would pay or, you know, these things uh, that happen in the medical industrial uh, complex. So when they say they're going to transfer you, you can fight against it or you can get depressed about it. Either way, you're going, you're going. I had enough experience with the federal government to know that once the ink hit the paper, you had nothing coming. Saying is silent, blank, blank, to those long teeth at the square as American flag tie, I pushed myself out of the green leather chair, grabbed the paper he was handing me, and stormed out of his office, slamming the door behind me. And so he then looked forward to his next uh, assignment where he was being transferred. But you know you're in prison when you have these recurring periods of helpless frustration, and you know you're in prison when you're jailing it. When you're just sitting around, all you want to know is what's the next rule, trying to obey the rules, trying to stay out of trouble, trying to be a good, and you can just fill in the blank. When you know your, your creativity is just totally um, suppressed. So the other thing is then the question is, what's this whole enlightenment thing? And this is interesting. Is when he finally hit this period of enlightenment, he describes it. And as he describes it, I said, hey, I went through that. I was, uh, I think I was enlightened for a moment there. And so he talked about, in terms of uh, the, the feeling, the spiritual path, and he says, suddenly the huge fear welled up in my mind and my inner voice whispered, if you meditate any longer, you're going to die. I didn't know what it meant exactly, but it scared me stupid. So immediately I flashed back on one of my cellmates going crazy. I didn't want to die. I didn't want to lose my mind. So I stopped meditating. And so it was everything else I felt up over the years. My whole idea of Kenny Splim, that was his nickname, that was going to die and be reborn. My glorious state was closer than I could have imagined. So what is he talking about? What he's saying then is his person, who he was, had to die. Not that he physically had to die. But his set of beliefs, his set of values, everything that led him to this place of being in prison for decades, that is what had to die. And actually what happened is that did die. And he actually realized that he just had nothing in common with who he was. He actually let go of all of those values, of all of those things that led him to the place where he was. And so he was meditating, and he said, eight or so of us were attending these meetings and the teachings of Tibetan Buddhism were different from each other. So the Tibetan teachings, the Buddhism teachings, the Christian teachings, they're all different. And that's what our group was into. It wasn't exactly a click, at least not for me. So I was also hanging out with the Muslims and the Christians and still spending time to drug dealers and the pimps. <laughs> we walked the yard together talking about the pimp game. 
Finally, the day arrived. And I remembered uh, my dream. And what he realized was that his interest in drugs, in pimping, all of those things had simply gone away. He no longer had an interest in that because he could meditate or look into himself inwardly and see that he had the peace, he had the personal recognition, everything he needed. I think for people who are stuck in the medical industrial complex, it's really important to look inside and see that, to look inside and realize, hey, if I feel fine, I am fine. There is no lie or secret my body is hiding from me. My body isn't plotting against me, trying to create a cancer and harm me. If your body has a problem, it actually tells you. And so what's happening is the medical industrial complex is actually pimping you, actually tricking you into turning over your hard-earned cash in exchange for an empty promise. Uh, I'll give you an example of someone I talked to. Actually, I was still in medical practice. And so one of my patients said, oh, you know, Dr. Daniels, it was just awful. My mother-in-law was healthy and doing just fine. All of a sudden, just like that, she got cancer. I said, really? Yes, it was terrible. I said, well, cancer does not come out of the blue. There's plenty of warning. She said, really? I said, yes. Did she have allergies? Oh, yes, doctor. Oh, she had also allergies. Well, she had arthritis. Oh, my God, crippling arthritis. Just absolutely terrible, terrible arthritis. I said, well, did she have any, any, uh, was she taking any medications? Oh, goodness, yeah, she had tons of medications she was taking. I said, "Uh uh-huh. So, it, it didn't come out of the blue. She had quite a bit of warning. And actually, the first warning is um, allergies, because allergies are the first symptom that your immune system is uh, is weak. And so, instead, what the medical industrial complex does is presents you with a bunch of elaborate X-rays and blood tests and biopsies to ostensibly um, assess the level of your health, but actually, these measures are not reliable. And so, with this. Uh, career criminal realized was that he didn't need these external measures. He didn't didn't need these um, this peer reinforcement. In other words, if he felt fine, uh, he was fine. And so that really, for him, was a huge, huge turning point. And so he says here, I wasn't able to take in the last part because as soon as she said, God's grace is here now, my mind had totally gone blank. And then he said, she, this is his um, meditation uh, teacher, those of you who know Shakti, so she gave him Shakti. So this is, this is Shakti. And Shakti is basically a pronouncement that, hey, this is it. Your old life is over. Now it's the new you. So she said, come here, Kenny. 
lean your head over here. She gestured for me to come closer. She picked up this little mallet, little hammer, on a table next to her that was used to ring the bell that signified the end of the meditation period. Then she tapped it on the crown of my head three times, ding, 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 and it was the confirmation that I needed. I had this concept in my mind. In order to receive the guru's power, knowledge, and blessing, something definitive was supposed to happen. I had read stories about gurus using some kind of symbolic action to transmit their wisdom to the students, like uh, blessing them. And so a real guru doesn't give you anything. A real guru, a true guru, something mysteriously reveals inside your own mind and heart that you already have and you already are everything that you've been looking for from a guru. And this is the deal. You already have and you already are everything you've been looking for from the medical industrial complex. That is the key. That is the essence to set yourself free to be able to stop paying uh, the monthly payments to a pimp for something that you already have. And so... He said, after she tapped me on the head, my consciousness dropped down so deep inside that I lost all awareness of my surroundings. Whatever she was saying, whatever she was talking to, everything vanished. I was enveloped in vast warmth. Everything relaxed into what? I don't know. I just relaxed like I'd never relaxed before. There were no thoughts in my mind. I was at peace. And this is, this is the key. This is the kind of uh, enlightenment, awareness, nirvana, whatever you want to call it. But you need to reach the point where you are ready to accept nothingness. What does that mean? That means totally re-examine everything you ever thought or believed about the medical system. To not, to not accept anything as, okay, this is the foundation, I'm going to start from here. I'll give you an example. Last weekend, I met this, uh, actually, we still met this guy. We got to talking. He said, oh, my God, what do you do? I said, well, I work online, you know, and I have a radio show, and I talk to people about health care and help them understand things. He says, really? He says, well, I have diabetes. I said, oh, really? So when do you take medicines for it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's just as if I don't have diabetes. I said, oh, how's it work? He says, well, I've got my hemoglobin A1C down to six, and I'm working on getting it down to four. Because if six is good, a hemoglobin A1C of four is better. Now, those of you who uh, are listening to this program, you, you know, we know from past shows and from research done by the medical industrial complex itself, that hemoglobin A1C below 8 increases one's death rate by 30%. Gotcha. So then this person, to actually free himself from the medical industrial complex, would literally need to let go of the concept, one, that hemoglobin A1C is a valid measure, two, the hemoglobin A1C of six is a valid or healthy target, and I just can't even tell you all the, oh, and then the other thing we need to let go of is that he and his body cannot determine if he's healthy and he needs the blessing of the medical industrial complex. So whether it's a scan to see if the cancer has come back, whether it's an annual exam, it's no more valid than this guru tapping this guy in the head three times with a hammer. And later in the book he says, and she told him, that tapping you on the head three times with a hammer is a way to get your attention. And that he didn't even need that. He just simply needed to settle down and 
look inside of himself for what it was he wanted rather than looking outside. And this is what he says. Again, it felt like I'd never seen nature before, never seen the night sky. Definitely was the first time I'd ever recognized love in nature. I saw no differences between nature and love. At that exact moment, for that first time, I saw the same loving goodness inside myself, and I fell in love with it. It would be the very beginning of my starting to honor myself and treat myself in a loving fashion. That was the moment I finally stopped putting myself in prison and started honoring my own goodness. Now, you guys can literally take this as a message for yourself in the medical industrial complex. So let me translate this into medical leads for you. I saw no difference between my body and my health. At the exact moment, for the first time, I saw the same healthy goodness inside myself. I fell in love with it. It would be the very beginning of my starting to honor my health and treat myself in a loving, healthy fashion. That was the moment I finally stopped putting myself in the prison of the medical industrial complex and start honoring my own goodness. Okay, so we rewrote that to address the medical industrial complex. And this is very, very important. And finally, it said right there on the spot in the middle of a prison yard, I had my first experience ever of pure freedom. And again, it is really, you have to free yourself inside before you can be free outside. And he said, oh my God, I guess inside myself, I never knew there could be this much love. And again, in terms of the medical industrial complex, an individual trying to get free, it's, oh my God, I never knew there could be this much health. And really, each time you go into the doctor, The time outside of the doctor's door is probably going to be a healthier experience for you than the time inside the office. I'll tell you what happened uh, to me as a 16-year-old, actually 17-year-old candy striper as a volunteer. It was my job to escort patients in the hospital to their um, hospital room or to admissions, whichever, and to escort them on discharge to the curbside to their car. And so I noticed that when I escorted people from their car to admissions or to their room, they were smiling, they were upbeat, they were happy, they were looking forward to their procedure, forward to getting better. And when I escorted them from their uh, room to their car, to the curb, they were crying, they were moaning, they were bandaged up, they were bruised. I said, something is wrong with this picture. (laughs) As a 16-year-old indoctrinated kid, I couldn't quite sort it out. And so this is what happened to him, and this is also what can happen to you. And so... You have to finally, the other thing to do, though, that he mentioned, is because you are enlightened in one area, in this case, he got enlightened about getting out of prison, 
that the prison was actually in his mind, and once he let himself mentally out of prison, then he physically was able to get out of prison and stay out. Then he had other enlightenments to come. He had to enlighten, accept enlightenment in the area of his relationships with um, with women, his relationships with um, business, his relationships with alcohol. In each area, he had to wipe the slate clean and say, you know what, I'm letting go. I am accepting that each and everything I believe might be false, and I'm willing to start with a clean slate and build up. And so what I'm suggesting in the area of the medical industrial complex is that this is the case. And um, the best thing for your health is to wipe the slate clean. And whatever your religion, whether it's Christianity, Buddhism, Jewish, Hindu, whatever your religion is, I really firmly suggest that you put your religion first and that you um, lean on your religion in terms of what you want to believe or are going to believe. And then that gives you the strength to wipe everything clean with respect to medical industrial complex. (laughs) And so... It's difficult to wipe everything clean that you ever believe about anything because you've got to do something. So the strategy then is to accept your beliefs in one area firmly. Go ahead and cling to them. No big deal. Wipe out the beliefs you have in the area of medical industrial complex and build a new foundation based on your observation of what's true. And um, that is the way to proceed. And so he has to do this again and again in his book. And that is that is what he did piece by piece. And so here's a little paragraph about. Um, his finally letting go. As it turned out, even though I was the professional thief, it was she, his guru, who stole that one last hustle from me. Consciousness itself proved to be the ultimate thief. In order to receive God's grace, I had to surrender fully into now with no promise of a future or nothing in return. This is key. People feel that in order to drop their, their, their health insurance, they need a guarantee. They need a guarantee they're never going to get sick. They need a guarantee uh, of something. They need something in return. And that's false. That's fake. Um, I know when I dropped my health insurance back in 1994, I dropped it because I just couldn't see where the money was leading. And I felt that me and the kids could use that extra 300 bucks a month. But at the time, I was a vegetarian, vegan health nut, and it was my um, belief slash hope that by doing the right thing, I would never get sick. And it's not true. Everybody gets sick. Sickness visits everybody, and we all die. What you 
find over time, once you're committed to not accessing the medical industrial complex, is not only are there no guarantees in life, but you don't even need a guarantee. So if you get sick, you develop a whole repertoire of things that you can do. And even if you're healthy, you can do the mouth thing. A lot of times you sit and wait and drink And so I was willing to drop this $300 a month burden and accept no guarantees. None. No guarantees. Now it's dropped. I dropped the health insurance, life insurance, and so that adds up. So at the end of the year, I had another $10,000 cash in my pocket to actually handle a few things. And this is um, what he says about. And so when my guru stole that hustle from me, which is the, the pretense that you could get something in exchange for living in the, in this place, she left nothing. That's the truth. Absolutely nothing. And that nothing was a bliss mind, a mind willing to step into the unknown. It was the bliss of an empty heart, a heart willing to be life on the outside was going to throw my way. Was that not my knowing the thing about how I was going to? And so this is the attitude you need going forward to save yourself in life, to prevent mutilation. To prevent, to, in other words, to prevent yourself being in yourself being tortured. So you have to accept one that there are no guarantees, <laughs> and two that um, you don't need. So that is the last hustle. Now there's a couple of questions here in the chat room. I'm going to answer them. Uh, okay, all the problems with audio. Problems with audio is the internets are, are, are flaky. So I will have a, a second recording that will be uh, put up. And now I'm not using Hulu, whatever that is. All right, so did I ever sit this person straight about his diabetes number chasing? No, I did not. I just recommended you listen to one of my shows on diabetes. Uh, the first one was so entrenched that it was just an overwhelming task, and I was trying to... to have a good time and enjoy myself. Okay. All right, so let me go check and see. Let me see if we have any questions on the panel. Sorry about the audio, but you have a question? Yes, hello, Dr. Daniels. Yes. Yes. Um, I want to know what the most important thing is to do to strengthen your keys. Well, the most important thing to strengthen your keys. Um, I would say I would say the one most important thing would be to um, take or brittle is because the trace minerals aren't there to hold the calcium. That would be the one. What was that you said? The first thing you said, I didn't hear you. Hello? That would be be the most important thing to do. I'm sorry, I didn't hear what you said. To do 
Yeah. So important thing you can do to uh, improve your teeth. That would be number one. Number two would probably be to start and start using something like uh, baking soda, salt, or you know, I use Listerine mouthwash. Or even just things you can do. All right. So that brings today's uh, show to an end. We will have a recording, a much better recording, upsite. So do visit uh, vitalitycapsules.com and check out the replay. Okay. Make me.